Our scripture is Esther 9:11 through 19. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed seventy-five thousand of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the thirteenth and fourteenth, and then on the fifteenth they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the fourteenth of the month of Adar as a day of feasting and joy, a day for giving presents to each other. Good morning. I wanted to highlight for you, you may be wondering about why on your bulletins, on the cross, on the banner, as you come in, these clockworks. Well, as we thought and prayed about the theme of the book of Esther and then the next book, we're starting next week, the book of Hosea, we thought, you know, The theme that overrides both is God's persistent love through time. And so the clockworks are a reminder that God, through the churnings of time, as time ticks away, his love continues to be there, continues to be the same. We've seen it through the book of Esther. We will see it throughout the book of Hosea. So I just wanted to highlight that. And of course, it's the cross that is the greatest picture, greatest example for us of God's persistent love through time. Well, 70 years ago this week, the Allies gathered together to invade the beaches of Normandy, to parachute in behind the lines, to gain a foothold in France, in that area of Normandy, so that finally, once and for all, Hitler could be defeated. When they gained that foothold, the war was essentially over. They still had to fight the battles. They still had to take ground in France and Belgium and Germany, make it to Berlin. There were battles to be fought. There were casualties, like my own father, who was injured near the Battle of the Bulge. And yet, essentially, the war was over. The victory had been won. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan was ultimately defeated. Victory was won. Hallelujah. And yet, there are still battles to be fought. We have to live in this hostile world. 
We look forward to the final day, V-Day, Victory Day, when Jesus returns. But for now, we still have to live in this hostile world. So how should we live in this hostile world in which we live, in this mop-up operation, where victory is assured and yet there is plenty to be done? Satan is still the god of this world and he hates Christians and he wants to destroy us. And many people need to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So how should we live? Well, in this book of Esther, evil Haman was out to destroy all the Jews in the kingdom. In fact, really all the Jews in the world because they all lived within this Persian kingdom and the edict went out to destroy and kill all the Jews. An edict that could not be reversed. But God has used Esther and Mordecai to bring about another edict that the Jews can now take up arms, which they couldn't before, and defend themselves and kill their enemies. So now what? There's two edicts out there. What would the Jews do? What should they do? How should they live? Well, this end of the book of Esther, these last couple chapters, I think, give us, give the Jews, but also give us our marching orders as to how God wants us to live in this hostile world. So let's pray and we'll look at this together. Lord, thank you for the ultimate victory you won, Jesus, when you gave up your life for us, when you carried our sins on the cross. Thank you that Satan and death were ultimately defeated. And yet, as you know, we live in this difficult world. May we be the people of God you've called us to in this intervening time. Use this passage to teach us how we are to live today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three points I see in these last couple chapters. First, we are to be a people that keep fighting. <laughs> keep fighting. In the passage that Stephanie read, and then at the beginning of chapter 9, you see that there's the two edicts out there. The enemies of the Jews began to pick up arms, and they came, according to the first edict, to kill all the Jews. But according to the second edict, the Jews took up arms to defend themselves. And they fought against those who were coming to kill them. They simply defend themselves. And as we saw, they kill over 75,000 in the whole empire of Persia. I want you to note something. That seems kind of awful to us, doesn't it? That these people of God would take up arms and kill so many. And yet you need to understand that they were merely defending themselves. The original edict had said they could kill their enemies and their women and their children and take the plunder. But they didn't do that. They killed only the enemy men, the soldiers that were coming after them to kill them. And it says they did not take the plunder. Three times in the text it emphasizes they did not take the plunder. They remained a people of integrity. They reversed the curse that came when Saul, so many years before, was told to kill the Amalekites and not take the plunder, and instead he took 
plunder. But here the Jews don't, and they reverse that curse. But it raises the question for me, and maybe for you too, why were the Jews hated so much? It raises the question maybe of why the Jews have been persecuted so much throughout history as well. Why is that? Well, I think if you look back at Esther 3.8, where Haman is trying to convince King Xerxes to destroy this people, notice what he says. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people. And they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. You see, the reason the Jews were hated so much is because they followed a different Lord. They were seeking to please God and therefore did not follow the customs of the Persian Empire. You see, the world does not tolerate those who won't play by its rules. And the truth is, if we are to be the people of God, we can never play by the rules of the world around us. The world will not tolerate those who won't play by its rules, and yet we are a people who must not play by the rules of the world. That puts us in a difficult position, doesn't it? It means we, like the Jews, will be hated. In a Breakpoint article... Breakpoint's a ministry of the former Chuck Colson. The author writes this, In America, there is an increasing hostility towards those of us who disagree with the ongoing normalization of homosexual conduct and so-called gay marriage. In recent months, we've seen people as varied as pro football players, TV stars, restaurant owners, wedding photographers, and others face fines, suspensions, and even the loss of their livelihoods for failing to celebrate the new sexual orthodoxy. The days of acceptable Christianity are over. It's no longer easy to be a faithful Christian. They threaten us with consequences if we refuse to call what is good evil and what is evil good. They demand us to conform our thinking to their orthodoxy or else say nothing at all. To be a witness for the gospel today is to make oneself a marked man or woman. It is to expose oneself to scorn and reproach. That's the reality of the world in which we live, which has been the norm throughout history, but we are just beginning to experience it here in this country. So why were the Jews hated so much? because they didn't live by the customs of the world around them, and neither can we. Secondly, they were hated because they had an enemy. God's people, both Jews and Christians, have an enemy, Satan, the God of this world, who wants to destroy us. So Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first, Jesus says. So, If the Jews were to take up arms and fight, then how does this apply to us? Are are we to take up arms? They had to enter the battle. They had to defeat the enemy. Well, I believe we too are to keep fighting. But we need to be very careful to think about 
what enemy we are to be fighting against. Who is our enemy? Too many Christians today, I think, see President Obama, gay rights advocates, ACLU, the liberal media, and on and on as our enemies. Folks, this is simply wrong. They are not our enemies. They are captives of the enemy. That's true, but they are not our enemies. It's very clear in the New Testament that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Stated most clearly in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read that for you now. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, our battle, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Don't ever see other people as the enemy. The enemy is Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is the world system. And the enemy is our own flesh that we still carry with us. It's ultimately a battle for our own soul and the souls of other people. That is the battleground in which we fight. So how are we to keep fighting these battles until Jesus returns? Well, let's think each one. How do we fight Satan? Resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? Satan is a liar. He's an accuser. He's a murderer. He wants to destroy us through lies and accusations and guilt and shame. But we're told here to put on the full armor of God, which is what? The helmet of salvation. I'm saved in Christ. The breastplate of righteousness. My righteousness comes from Him, not from me. I mess up all the time, but I've been given the gift of His righteousness. Gird your loins with the belt of truth. Remind yourself of truth. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, our main weapon against Satan is truth. Remind yourself of the truth. He may throw lies at you. You fool. You idiot. You can't do it. God can't love you. You're a failure. And we say, no, I will put on the armor of God I put my faith in Christ, in the cross of Jesus Christ. I've got His righteousness. God loves me. I am beloved by Him. And you remind yourself of truth. That's how we fight Satan. How do we fight our enemy in the world itself, in the world system of thinking? Well, it's good and helpful, I think, to understand what the world throws at us. The world says, live for self, live for money. Live for power, for image, for status. Stay safe. Protect yourself. Things are more important than people. Your security depends on your bank account. 
or your 401k. Folks, these are lies of the world. They are not true. But the world throws them at us and wants us to believe it's lies so we'll, we will be rendered ineffective for the kingdom of God. So how do we fight against such lies, the world around us? Again, by truth, reminding yourself of truth and choosing to live for God alone. I will not live for money or self or to protect myself. I will live for the kingdom of God. He is Lord. God's taking care of me so I can give my life away. One of the greatest weapons we have against the world system is love. Where we choose to trust God to take care of us and we give our lives away to bless those around us. Keep fighting. Don't give up. I love stories like the Mannings who are in a place that's very difficult but they're there giving up what the world has to offer. Why? Because they're fighting the world system, seeking to live out their faith there in Jordan. Our third enemy is the flesh, which we all carry around. How do we fight the flesh? The flesh says, live for what feels good. You deserve to be comfortable. You deserve to be happy all the time. Satisfy your desires. Live for yourself. Give in to your addictions. You can't conquer them anyway. How do we fight the flesh? By putting it off. By putting on Christ. By dying to self. Submitting to God's will. Putting your hopes squarely on heaven when all will be made right. You see, as believers, we are to continue to fight to take ground in our own souls for Christ, to let our minds and our hearts and our souls be more and more given over to His Lordship over time. The ultimate victory has been won. D-Day assured victory in Europe in World War II, but the soldiers still had to keep fighting, and we are called to keep fighting. Jesus has won the ultimate victory, but while on earth we're still taking ground, still mopping up. So keep fighting. But not only are we to keep fighting, but the passage goes on, I think, to encourage us that as God's people, we are to keep celebrating as well. Life is a battle, and it's also a party. <laughs> See, I think God loves parties. He loves it when we celebrate His goodness. He instituted several regular feasts in Israel. Three times, Israel was all to appear in Jerusalem and celebrate these great feasts to celebrate what God had done in delivering them from Egypt. God's provision year by year for their needs through the harvest. His protection of them and so forth. They were to celebrate regularly. And in our passage Today, we'll see how another feast was instituted, the Feast of Purim. It's a major Jewish holiday that they still celebrate today in the month of Adar, the Jewish month, which is February to March in our calendar. And they celebrate in a major way by feasting, by giving gifts to one another, and by giving gifts to the poor. Let me read verses 20 through 22 of chapter 9. 
After they defeated their enemies, Mordecai recorded these events. And he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and giving gifts to the poor. It's called the Feast of Purim because that is the word for lots. It's reminiscent of when Haman cast lots to see when all the Jews were to be killed and destroyed. And now the Jews celebrate that to say, no, though we were destined for destruction, God delivered us in a mighty way. They were to celebrate that great deliverance. You see, God loves parties. <laughs> and one of the main characteristics of believers... God's people throughout history, both the Jews and us as well, as we are to be a celebrating people. It should be a major part of what we do together. C.S. Lewis said, Joy is the serious business of heaven. You see, it's serious business. What we're, what we're called to do, what we're to live out is the joy of what God has done for us on the cross, what He continues to do in His provision for us day by day, and the hope, the great hope we have that Jesus is going to come back and set all things right. Folks, we have a lot to celebrate. And we are to be a celebrating people. How do we celebrate? Well, we're to do like the Jews did. Gather together like this. I don't know if you understand how important it is that we gather together in meetings like this and sing the praises of God and encourage one another, delight and remind ourselves of what God has done in delivering us, in giving up His life for us and how He provides for us every day. And we tell the stories of God. We sing the stories of God. And we look forward to the great hope of when it will return this is so important for our souls to be a celebrating people. We need to gather like this. I hope when you come to meet together at Cole or wherever you fellowship regularly that you would have this heart, not that, oh, I'll check this off my list. I'm supposed to go to church. No, this is a celebration of the goodness of God. God wants us to keep celebrating, to gather together, to use our spiritual gifts to bless one another, give to the poor as they did in Purim, and be a celebrating people. And then finally, God wants us not just to keep fighting, not just to keep celebrating, but to be a people who spreads shalom. Spreads shalom. Let me read that last chapter. It's just three verses. Chapter 10. Now King Xerxes laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Xerxes, and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people. Get this last phrase one who sought the good of his people 
and one who spoke for the welfare or the shalom is the word of his whole nation. I don't know if you caught the the contrast in those verses. Xerxes is the most powerful ruler on earth. Of course, he just got defeated by the Greeks. He's not doing so well, but (laughs) he's the most powerful ruler on earth. And how does he use his power? To take taxes. So he can do what we saw in the first chapter where he threw a six-month party, opulence, gold, everything was over the top. He used his power to use the people. But notice the contrast with Mordecai, the second most powerful man in the entire empire of Persia. And how does it say that Mordecai used his power? To do good for his people and to bring shalom to his entire nation. (laughs) What a wonderful example for you and me. You see, we are to be people who bring shalom, who spread shalom. The word shalom, as you may recall, is the Hebrew word that means completeness or wholeness or health, where where everything is right. It's so much more than just peace. It's wholeness, it's life to its fullest. And that's what Mordecai is doing. He's using his authority to bring good to his people and to spread peace and welfare, shalom, throughout the nations. Again, that's what we are to be, right? We're to be salt and light. What does salt do? Salt preserves the meat, keeps it whole, keeps it healthy, so that it doesn't rot. And God has placed us, Christians, his people, throughout the world in culture so that we might be a people who keeps it from rotting away. Starting and running hospitals, starting orphanages and schools and rehab facilities, moving into the inner city and bringing life to a dead culture, seeking to stop sex trafficking, loving AIDS patients, taking care of the environment, being good stewards, providing counseling services, caring for refugees, having coffee with a hurting friend, fighting poverty, and on and on. These are just some of the ways Christians have been involved in spreading shalom, being salt in the world. I love stories. Just in this body, there's many of you that are involved in spreading shalom. Our our King's Garden is a wonderful place where... We now have 17 plots that are uh, being worked on by refugee families. But there's some that work together, so there's probably 25 families, refugee families out there, that we are blessing through the King's Garden. I love stories like Marcia Tennyson, who began Chrysalis House, a transitional house for women coming out of prison or out of addiction. And many of you women have been involved as mentors, as counselors for those women It's a wonderful place of bringing shalom to a hurting group of people. And I could go on and on. But this is what we're called to as believers. That's why God left us here. Not to fight people, but instead to see Christ in them. As Jesus said, 
As you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. To bring shalom into their lives. To love the neighbor who's hurting, who just went through a terrible divorce. And you have them over for dinner and you encourage them, comfort them. This, folks, is fulfilling our place on earth as the people of God. And I want to read a couple of passages that reflect what we're called to. One is Genesis chapter 12. When God first begins to form a people, he calls Abraham. And he says, go forth from your country to the land I'll show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God blesses us that we might be a blessing, that we might spread shalom in this place where he has put us. One other passage is Jeremiah 29. Familiar passage you probably have memorized, verse 11. Or you may have. We love verse 11. (laughs) For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom, welfare, and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. We love that. Yeah, God, make my life better. (laughs) We forget verse 7, which comes first. Verse 7 says this, Seek the shalom, the welfare of the city, where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom, welfare, you will have shalom, welfare. You see, the way we experience shalom on earth is by spreading shalom. (laughs) By praying for those around us. By seeking the shalom, the wholeness, the health of our community, of our neighbors, of our friends, of this world. God wants us to be a people who bring shalom, to be a blessing to, to the world, not to abandon it to its evil. There's some opportunities that we have coming up. There's many opportunities, but I just want to highlight a couple. The Armstrongs, Nick and Laura Armstrong, are beginning a ministry to refugees And the elders have asked them to include the body as much as possible. We have an opportunity to reach out to a lost and hurting group of people that God has brought right here to us, refugees. I hope you will consider getting involved with them in their ministry. In three weeks from yesterday, there's a family service day. It's for religious faith communities in this entire West Bench area. Mormons will be there. Churches of all kinds will be there and coal will be involved. It's a chance to rub shoulders with all of them and bring shalom to our community by helping our parks, helping in different ministry areas, making fleece blankets to help others. I hope you will consider signing up as an opportunity to bring shalom to our community. The end of Esther. God has won the ultimate victory. But the people still had to finalize that victory by being the people of God. In the same way, God calls us to be the people of God until the final victory is won. To keep fighting. 
putting off the flesh, learning to submit our will to God more and more and not live by the world, but by Jesus as Lord and Savior. To keep celebrating the glory of what He's done for us, what He is doing for us, and the great hope we have in His return. And to work to bring shalom in our community, in our world, however God leads you to do so. So what have we seen in the book of Esther? A few key points. God is sovereign. He's working behind the scenes in ways that we may not see at the time, but He will fulfill His purposes. We can trust in His sovereignty that He's always working for the good of His people. Secondly, we've seen that God loves to act in radical reversals. That's where His resurrection power works the most. When we are at our worst, when things look most lost, that's where the resurrection power of God is released. There's no place to see that like the cross, where it looked like Satan had won and God defeated our enemies on the cross. God loves to act in radical reversals. Third, we've learned God loves to use ordinary people like you and me if we will simply depend on Him. In Esther chapter 4, remember the words we studied, starting in verse 13. Mordecai said to reply to Esther, Don't imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all of the Jews. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Brothers and sisters, God has placed you and me in this place at this time for such a time as this. To be His people. To spread shalom. God has put you and me where we are for such a time as this. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that the final victory is won. Satan has been defeated. We have that absolute assurance through the power of the cross and the resurrection that the victory is won. And yet we must continue walking in this world. Help us be your people here. Help us not hide out and just live by the world, but instead... Help us be passionate people who live for the kingdom of God, who keep fighting to put away sin and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who keep celebrating the glorious victories that you are winning and the way you are working in our lives every day, and who spread shalom wherever you have placed us. May we be the people of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.